I was just looking at the time and thinking perhaps I can integrate a question from our audience. Uh, Anna Helmont raises the question of the classic problem of onboarding. How do you get users on, on uh, imagined alternative platforms? Yeah, that the whole thing of network effect, for instance, comes in here. And I can see Anna, uh, Anna's question, which is extremely in, uh, important. Can alternative platforms ever become mainstream, which may be needed to have and retain a public sphere? That is a question that I've really that I'm really intrigued by. And it is such an important question because, of course, on the one hand, you need what I just explained as this common denominator that is needed to create a public sphere that we all want to live in that and that we feel is shared by you know a, people of a certain um, either a certain group or a, certain, a larger group but having that uh, public sphere is incredibly important now alternative at the same time you know doesn't mean that you cannot become mainstream but it's not your intention to become mainstream in the first place and that i think a lot of people are asking me i don't know what that if that happens to you ethan but um when we're thinking about creating an alternative platform, they ask me like, do you really want to build a, an alternative to Facebook? Well, the answer is no, of course not. We, we do not want to build another Facebook. The whole thing, the whole, uh, in, in, you know, the whole intent of, of creating an alternative is not to rely on the same principles as Facebook did. And that of course is also saying, well, we do need a public sphere, but that, that public sphere is very diverse. And it has a common ground because the question that Ethan was just raising is how do we get from smaller communities, but how can we create a bigger communities community in terms of what they can learn from each other and how they can um, uh, really see, start to see themselves as a larger community that share a lot of common ground and have you know, a common denominator. So, but this is sort of a chicken and egg question that uh, is constantly brought up. Do you need to become bigger in order to uh, gain public uh, uh, public ground or to create a bigger, pu you know, public sphere effect? Or do you create alternatives in order to get away from that mainstream and uh, make sure that your alternative space is uh, creating that diverse um, specter of different places where you can uh, you know, actually, actually engage with each other? I don't know how you think about that, uh, Ethan. Well, so we are trying to be ruthlessly practical in what we're building. So here's the first ruthlessly practical thing that we have done you can sign up for this small town network and create your own account on it or you can simply show up with your login credentials from google or from facebook and if you choose to log in with one of them you automatically have an account and there it is and there you go is this good for the world in the long run no is this good in the short run yes absolutely it's making it much easier for people to go and experience something different our goal is not to take down Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, any of these. It's to demonstrate that there are many alternatives and that these alternatives where you could be involved with the values and the governance may in the long run be more rewarding. So the other piece of software we're building is a client for your phone that allows you to look at Twitter, allows you to look at YouTube, we can't do it for Facebook because they'll sue us, um, but look at several different networks, Reddit, and look at these small social networks and have them in the same place and have some control over them. 
our worry on onboarding is not even so much that barrier of creating the account and creating the password. It's actually remembering to use these networks. It's remembering that you care about them. There's a conversation that you want to have that's part of it. We can do dumb things like sending updates to your email, but I think the smart thing we can do is to say, look, I have emails on five different systems. They all show up in the same place. They get sorted together and it just works for me. Why can't I do that for social networks? Well, you can't do it under market logic because they all want to protect themselves as closed private verticals. But if you're trying to do this values-based and you're trying to empower the individual, she might decide that she wants to have all of her social networks in the same place. Let's make that possible. So I think there are small technical changes we can make to try to build our way around some of these socio-technical problems, but they come from breaking away from the market logic and asserting that we have a values-based individual logic that has primacy. Right. But then in order to pursue this, to pursue this wonderful ambition, we do need some laws that actually not only yes. allow us to do that, but also promote such, you know, interconnectivity. Uh, uh, and a few of these conditions, I think, that we could build into the legal system is uh, interoperability, you know, a condition that really requires that you can, for instance, as you just mentioned, you can't send uh, messages from Signal to uh, WhatsApp and vice versa, because it's protected by the whole face Facebook or I should say meta uh, logic of a market log logic, a corporate walled in environment that they build. Now, mandating or imposing in interoperability by law would really make a difference in terms of, you know, being able to connect um, uh, or actually enable technological diversity, right? Um, data portability would be another condition that we may mandate by law because right now I can't take all my data or messages from one, let's say from Facebook to uh, YouTube and vice versa. And But, you know, I, if I would want to do that with open source systems, for instance, there's no way we could actually build that into the uh, global ecosystem without having a mandated interoperability and data portability. Uh, condition. And I think the last uh, issue is open standards, which is a very important means of uh, saying, well, you know, we need open standards because if we, if we can't exchange uh, hardware and software from from one walled garden to another and use that, you know, interchangeably, then we will always be subject to the conditions that the cor big corporations, the big tech companies are actually imposing on us for participating in their infrastructural um, uh, context. So I think we need to do something at the legal level and that for that I'm probably looking at both the EU level and the US level of um, uh, legal mandates and changing legal frameworks because I think without that we can you know create whatever alternative tech we want but we're not going to get there in terms of um, all mashing them together and turning them into a vibrant and uh, ecologically diverse ecosystem. So here is a, a yes and. So first of all, your prescription is, is wonderful. It's spot on. It's exactly what you need. It's this combination of open standards, portability and interoperability. You also need compelling tools that are taking advantage of those things. And what's interesting is 
the history of technology is one in which the tools precede the policy. And so Cory Doctorow writes about this as adversarial interoperability. Um, I'm speaking to you through an Apple computer. One of the reasons that Apple continues to exist is that it insisted that it was going to be interoperable with Microsoft, whether Microsoft liked it or not. It simply figured out how to export documents that would be compatible with Microsoft, and eventually Microsoft said, okay, I guess we're compatible with Macintosh. Maybe the better story of this is the emergence of this protocol called Jabber. This is what came from America Online, Yahoo, Microsoft, all running their own instant messaging systems and having the, the problem that you just identified. I can't send a message from Signal to WhatsApp. Um, and someone essentially saying, well, this is nonsense. I'm going to build a single system that can just talk to all the rest of them. That system became so popular, it emerged into XMMP, which is now the messaging standard that everyone sort of ends up using. So the funny thing about this, Jose, is I actually think we do both at the same time. I think we go into the legislature and to the courts with our prescription and we say we need these things, we need it to happen. But we also need a wave of people willing to take the risk that their software is going to get shut down, that they are going to get a cease and desist notice to start building these things. And that's why I would add the last piece of this, which is we actually need some sort of a spark for this open ecosystem. Herr Jean is on this call. I see a comment from him. He's excited about a world in which we're creating open values-driven software that might allow VPRO to use supported sustainable software that is less awful than the surveillance software that he's using now. But right now that software gets built by a 19 year old kid in his free time when he's not doing work for Karen's classes at university. We need some way to create money and support for innovation in this open values-driven space so that we're creating the tools that are going to take advantage of this environment that you're going to persuade the EU to give us. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate your, you know, your solution-based thinking, but I just want to bring up one problem, and that is that, of course, I, you know, I welcome all the kinds of solutions from all kinds of citizens and civil society initiatives and all that. But we also need to look at infrastructures because <laughs> if we don't go down the infrastructural uh, layers. You know, we are acknowledging by doing so, we basically acknowledge that those are the layers that are very uh, much sort of determinant of how we're using the layers that are built upon that, you know, upon the stack. How do you think, do we have as citizen citizen-based initiatives, do we have enough power to actually repeal that infrastructure or make it more open? Because I'm thinking not just about, you know, the big infrastructural things like, you know, cables and satellites, and because they're very, very expensive infrastructures, but I'm also thinking about the increasing power of uh, cloud services, for instance, yeah. and of course, more, you know, upwards in the stack, the uh, app stores, which are very uh, sort of, you know, the narrow gatekeepers that 
can basically either allow or not allow you to come into the market. How do you how do you see the infrastructural problem? I think you've just identified some of the harder infrastructures to challenge. Um, let me throw a couple of others that I think are incredibly difficult to challenge. Search. Um, search is a core infrastructure for everything we do in an information society. It is monopoly controlled. It is entirely opaque. And we have no idea whether it is treating individuals or ideas fairly. Um, advertising. We spend a lot of time talking about advertising as a problem. It's part of the surveillance economy. The truth is advertising can be very helpful. It can be very helpful for markets. It's also one of the best ways to support um, content in a non-subscription environment. So a situation where someone is not ready to sort of put money down. Can you build an infrastructure that's non-surveillant but still works as advertising? So I think a lot of these different problems are open to public infrastructure type solutions. We are starting to see some that are very interesting. I'm suspicious of most of what's going on in sort of this tokenized Web3 space. But one of the projects that I am extremely enthusiastic about is Interplanetary File System, which is trying to create shared storage systems that are robust, that are anonymous, and that are not owned by either Google or Amazon Web Services. Um, I think it's very clever. I think it's very interesting. I think it's a promising sort of direction to go in. My overbroad answer on this is we need lots more innovation, lots more creativity within these spaces, and we need to think about bringing it down um, to local levels as well as up to national levels. For instance, um, in the US, it is not uncommon for very rural areas to build their own telephone companies right. and there are legal um, protections that mandate that they be allowed to interoperate with the rest of the system we are seeing people do that around broadband honestly where those cooperatives suffer the most is financing uh, they have a very difficult time going to the markets to sort of have the chance to build those things. So in addition to interoperability, portability, open standards, I want us thinking about how we as a society enable groups of people to organize, to access capital, and to have the rights to build infrastructures that interoperate with existing infrastructures. So, so that's my hope on that one, understanding that it's a very incomplete answer to a very hard question that you're asking. I actually see, Karen, if you allow me to do so, I would like to point out a question in the chat from uh, Matilda Sanders. And she says, um, what about uh, business models giving users and institutions more opportunities to use their data their own data as a currency to finance new services now there's one potential answer to your the question you just raised uh, ethan um would that be a possibility and uh, this sort of reminds me of uh, the uh, tim berners lee initiative for uh data pots you know where yeah. 
citizens have are in charge of their own data and can actually decide whether to use them towards financing, you know, or actually giving them away as currency to either private companies or public initiatives like research or allow them to be used by, you know, very specific uh, organizations. Now, would that model be a the beginning of a solution or an idea now that we're talking about reimagining public space on the internet what do you think about that so i think data collectives are a fascinating reimagining um i have been learning from them uh, about them from nathan schneider who is at the university of colorado boulder and he works with uh, trevor schultz who's one of the leading thinkers on platform cooperatives Nathan, I interviewed for my podcast two days ago, and he was telling me about two different data collectives. One of them in Europe um, was assembling medical data from people with rare diseases and controlling it and then donating it to researchers. So it was not attempting to monetize it but it was sort of attempting to control collective data and sort of pass it out. Then, of course, there was a U.S. version of this, which was collecting the data and then figuring out how to sell it to researchers. And, and I'm not opposed. I, I think it's interesting to think about, can you do these things in ways that are safe, in ways that are privacy protecting? But compared to how we treat data now, where you give it over to a company and you have no knowledge of where it's going, these all sound greatly preferable to me. For me, the part of it that I resist a little bit is I think we're still trapped within market logics. Right, I right. still think we're trapped within this idea that if someone can't make 20% a year on it, it's not worth doing. And I think one of the things we have to just keep reminding ourselves are that there are so many aspects of human life that are worth doing that are not well captured by the market. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just because no one is paying an admission fee when we go into the park down the street doesn't mean that it's worthless. Um, and it's also not something that should just be a weird historical legacy. Um, we should actively affirm that these things are worth doing. So exciting, yes. The only way to do it, no, not necessarily. Yeah, great. And there's also, of course, a bit of the fear if people start using their data as currency that you're reproducing existing inequalities in society as well, right? So that's something to be wary of. So let's go back to the always difficult question. How the larger question, how do we finance these projects? How we, And then the perhaps smaller question, which per, people in the audience might have, how do I as an individual make a difference? How do I set this in motion? Mm. Yeah, perhaps on the finance question, we haven't really discussed that. But one thing, of course, is that we need not fault to have to follow the logic of the, you know, the market logic of the, uh, the more dominant ecosystem, which where basically market logic um, is based on two things, data as currency, you know, which becomes your exchange currency in exchange for services. And the other one, of course, is the market logic of uh, big fi um, uh, investment financing. 
And those two types of, of, of financing need not be the only currency that we could bring into the Internet. So we also need to think about, you know, not just different business models, but different way of ways of thinking about how we can afford a diverse, technologically diverse and also public Internet. Now, you know, you have various types of, of funding in that respect. You can think about public for funding in terms of taxpayers' money, of course. Um, you could think about fundraising, but all, you know, it may sound very strange, but in fact, we're uh, a lot of, uh, most of societies, particularly in Europe, are already pouring a lot of money into infrastructure. You know, they, we pay for roads through taxes. We pay for trains through taxes. We actually are now going to spend a lot of public money, a lot of tax money on um, uh, actually, you know, sustainable technologies in terms of, uh, uh, you know, to to um, uh, protect ourselves from climate change uh, uh uh, implications. So why don't we think about the internet as a uh, also part as a government space, but also as a part as a publicly funded space that allows people to build on infrastructures that are, you know, provided by a state like roads, but then um, and also, you know, technology doesn't need to be so, so expensive. We always think about ex technology as incredibly ex expensive, big investments in huge global sort of technologies. They can also be very small and very practical and they need not cost a lot of money. So I'm very much, uh, you know, I have a very... Uh, very much in favor of the kind of projects that Ethan was just uh, pointing us towards, which are not huge. They're not like global in neither in technological perspective nor, nor in global financing, but they're very practical and they don't need to cost much money. So, um, you know, that is also alternative and imaginative uh, uh, thinking. So I, I want to start um, with your last point, Jose, which is... Um, these systems don't have to cost millions of dollars. They cost millions of dollars or billions of dollars when you're trying to serve billions of users and make billions of dollars. Um, as we've been building this system for the town of Amherst, um, we were sort of doing our estimates of what we thought it would cost to run it on a regular basis. Um, and we sort of ran our numbers several times and came up with $50. It costs about $50 a month to sort of keep it up and running. And we presented this to the town uh, and they said, well, 50,000 is more than we can afford on a monthly basis. We said, no, 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 50, five, zero. <laughs> and, and it actually took them a while to sort of adjust to what we were saying. We were sort of trying to explain that actually running a small web server with a few hundred people interacting with it is an incredibly inexpensive thing to do. And if the moderation is being provided by the community, it, it's just not all that costly. Now, what is costly is actually building those systems in the first place, figuring out how to make them work, so on and so forth. That's where I want to see us create the pools of money. I am always inspired by people who find ways to undermine existing systems. So um, Mozilla has been one of the most powerful actors in the open source software space and they've done it essentially by taking enormous amounts of money from search engines instead of saying well look our homepage has to default to something so we'll take millions of dollars from google and we'll reinvest it in software to undermine google i, I think that's brilliant the the plan that i favor at least in the us for this 
is based on what's called a Romer tax. You take something that you want to see less of in society and you tax it at an increasing rate and then you use it to finance alternatives. And so the Romer tax in this case is on surveillance advertising. So for Facebook, whose business is almost entirely surveillance advertising, you start at 1%, you move up over the years, and you take the funds from that and you use it to fund innovation in community models that are non-surveillance in one fashion or another. You can create a funding agency, you can create a pool that people apply to. There are ways to do it. I do think it's probably more realistic in Europe than it is in the United States. When I talk about these ideas in the United States, you know, the first things people say are you're a communist. And I say I'm actually <laughs> a socialist. Uh, there is a distinction between the two of them. But what I really am is I'm simply pushing for public goods and infrastructure. And um, these are public goods in the same way that good schools, good libraries, good roads are public goods, good digital public spaces are a public good. And it doesn't mean they need to be government controlled a la China. It might mean that they are closer to the pillar system. It might mean that they're closer to the community system that I'm talking about, but they should come in part from taxing these companies that are so powerful and frankly have gotten so good at evading taxation um, that they're creating enormous amounts of value that is not benefiting society directly. And to add on that, I think uh, to bring back technological innovation to communities, to people, to schools, to, you know, very locally based um, uh, entities, you know, that would be quite wonderful because now technological innovation is increasingly captured by the big tech companies where it's professionalized. You either belong to that sphere of technological innovation or you don't. And increasingly people were a little, you know, smart about technologies and are uh, are very savvy in, in a sense, technologically savvy. They're brought into that corporate sphere, whereas I think, you know, it's especially in those communities and in, um, in schools, for instance, in educational systems where they're so much appreciated that where they should be able to stay to actually bring their innovation to, uh, you know, to blossom and to, uh, to make that useful for the community they're working for. This does begs the, beg the question to me because um, a lot of public funding is given on the condition that it doesn't crowd the market. Right? That's one of the, the challenges we see here in, in Europe as well. So I'm really always uh, inspired by the work of Mariana Masukuta. I'm sure I pronounced her name wrong, who's, who's very enthusiastic about um, yeah, turning this upside down, right? And really in having public money be used to go for the bigger goals and create the bigger challenges and in that way stimulate both the market and more of, uh, of the public sphere. So how do these two ecosystems coexist? How do you, yeah, how does that coexist? Would be my question. This feels like the moment to try to figure this out, right? So if I, I have a talk I will give in a, in a couple hours at, at Sion's Po, and if, if you all wanna hear it, you can follow me on Twitter and you'll, you'll probably see me share the link to it. Um, but it starts with 
you know, five questions about, you know, how social media is bad for us. And then saying, you know, why wouldn't it be bad for us? Of course, you know, it, it, it never intended to be good for us. Um, we are having this moment of realizing that so many of these systems are not working well for us as individuals. They're not working well for us as societies. And we are desperate for some sort of answer better than, well, maybe let's have a bad system with a little less misinformation on it. So if there's a moment to invert that paradigm the way that Masakuta is suggesting, where we say, no, actually, you know, public goods and public values might be more important than the market, and let's go ahead and do it this seems like both the time and the space to do it in because we can see that the market has simply not worked very well. This is why you hear me using these terms like reimagining. This is not so much a technical problem. Um, there are some interesting technical problems to be solved in all of this, but it's a conceptual problem. And it's this, it's a category problem. We are used to technology as a category being a business category. It is a category where people make a lot of money and it is a category with, you know, people with fancy degrees, you know, talking about incomprehensible things. Um, but really it needs to be a category where we're asking how is this good for us as individuals and good for us as society? And how would we build the investments to make those things happen? And we have to overcome lots of stuff that just isn't true, that governments can't innovate, that, you know, um, the only way to build technologies is to let entrepreneurs, who, by the way, are all young and white men, do whatever they want to do without any criticism, without any taxation. So it's this giant conceptual revolution that we need to be engaged in. And, and that's what I'm sort of passionate about as, as a call to arms, is, is, is to get people to the barricades around that issue. Wow. That's a call to arms, Ethan. <laughs> I, I'm I'm afraid so. Yeah. Um, you shouldn't be afraid. I think that's uh, you know a very nice call to arms. <laughs> well, but you understand, I hope from this conversation, why it's not just public spaces that I'm fascinated in from the Dutch model, and it's not just Europe that I'm fascinated in, right? So I'm interested in public broadcasting. I'm interested in the public spaces model. I'm interested in, in working in Europe because you take public goods more seriously than North Americans do. But I'm actually very specifically interested in the Netherlands history of multiple different groups organizing values-based ways forward. And I'm really curious, and maybe you'll write with me on this someday, Josie, about whether that is a, is a unique solution that lets us build a future that's not just sort of nationwide, but is really coming out of individual groups, individual social solidarities, groups of people who can get together and say, we, our own small group, want to bring forward a set of values into society. 
And you know, to we to uh, take a take on that, of course, and let's return to public spaces where we all started this conversation with. I think what is very encouraging is to see that there's 40 organizations, public organizations in the Netherlands that joined their forces because each of them individually can never make that fist, can never yeah. That's right. Actually, you know, do that building, that creation on their own. So that is where I'm becoming very optimistic because I see they need each other. They need to organize. They form a coalition. And that's where they become more powerful because just one public broadcaster or one museum can never make a dent in that whole ecosystem. One exactly. School one school, no way that that's going to make a difference. But 1,400 primary schools in the Netherlands who have now come together to build uh, a coalition that is uh, doing some collective bargaining with tech companies, that can make a difference. The 40 public organizations that together have like 90% of the attention of Dutch uh, uh, cultural, you know, cultural uh, consumers, for instance, that can make a difference. And yes. all these different initiatives that come together where coalition binding, coalition finding is, you know, more important than just, you know, doing your own thing or just go with the flow. That, I think, is going to be very, very important push towards imagining an alternative. And that I always say, you know, the Internet is all about connections and connectivity, not connectivity, but connectedness. And this is exactly the type of connectedness that, you know, I think it's very important to change the system as it is. Thanks, Jose. I think that's also a beautiful note to end this wonderful discussion on. And I would like to thank you very much both for sharing these ideas with us. I think there's a lot of food for thought here. And I'm delighted, Ethan, that you're coming to Europe. So hopefully we will have an opportunity to continue this discussion as well. And I would like to thank everyone online for joining us today. And uh, yeah, let's make sure this is just the beginning of a larger project we can all engage with. And thank Ethan, you. We're definitely going to host you in May. So yeah. all of you in the audience, we're very happy to invite you to a uh, hopefully physical conversation in Utrecht at Utrecht University hosted by Governing the Digital Society. So we hope to see all of you in May. Yeah. Wonderful. I will send dates. Thank you so much. It is so wonderful to spend this time with you. Thank you for a really wonderful and stimulating conversation today.